Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Thank you, Maria. There is a lot going on. At the same time, it appears like not much will come out of it. That not only concerns Belarus, but also Russia. The authorities are firmly in charge. So it appears, at least for now, both in Russia and Belarus, there were, there were similar scenarios. A uh, number of um, unauthorized demonstrations took place. The Belarusians were first, then the Russians followed, and the authorities cracked down very firmly, unfortunately. Uh, but they weren't too brutal. And mind you, my frame of reference is personal, martial law in Poland. I looked at the riots, at whatever social media had to give, as well as um, professional and semi-professional uh, TV and web TV camera crews. It, it doesn't look too brutal with all due respect to the victims. I, I saw a riot, the riot police at its worst. And this is, relatively speaking, mild. There are other developments, interesting developments, which most have overlooked. There have been a string of anti-Polish provocations, most likely by um, Russia's intelligence services in Ukraine. There is Polish uh, graves uh, and monuments have been defaced. That's been going on for a few months now. Two nights ago, ago <coughs> sorry, the Polish consulate in Łódź was mortared. Uh, yes, the ultranationalists have weapons in Ukraine, obviously. Uh, and yes, many of them don't have warm and fuzzy feeling for Poland and the Poles. But there is no good reason to mortar the Polish consulate. Further, yesterday, there was a blockade of a highway outside of Lwów. A bunch of people threw themselves at cars and wouldn't let them pass. They claimed to be Polish and they, cl they claimed to be demonstrating against the Ukrainization and persecution of the Polish minority in Western Ukraine. There is a tiny Polish minority. Now, the government of Ukraine went on the record announcing that those people were paid 300 hryvnas to show up at the demonstration, that they weren't Polish either. That's a very bad sign. That means that the Kremlin apparently has moved to a different stage of its designs on Ukraine. That may mean that, that they are ready to try to set up a more serious provocation, ultimately sink Transnistria or Nagorno-Karabakh. Gorbachev had meditated such solutions with Soviet Poles back in 88 to counter mostly um, Lithuanian nationalists but he was also thinking further afield, which, include, which included Ukraine. In any event, let me go back 
uh, to Belarus. I'll show you a little clip. Uh, or do we have two? Yeah, two clips of demonstrations and such. I'd like you to watch them first to see the, I don't know, popular anger revealing itself and the authorities cracking down. And this is basically the end of the story. It's not the Maidan, it's Minsk. Thank you. Okay. So it's going to be around four minutes or so. This is a cameraman pursuing the riot police, but only one detachment. As you'll see, no tear gas to speak of, and there will be eventually some brutality, but most of the time we're talking intimidation. Booming, voice assault, creating a phalanx. They're not as skilled as the Omon in Moscow, but they are pretty good. So we're talking here about a hundred officers, which is not an overwhelming force. And uh, again, we may be seeing just a fragment, but it is central Minsk. I can recognize, I can, I can tell, I recognize it. These trucks are a portable prisons. You can cram maybe 40 people. I mean, if you use, there should be maybe 15 people or 20, but if you use a lot of force, perhaps 60 people could fit. As you see, things have changed dramatically. They used to never allow any filming. Now there are cameras. So if I say there is less brutality, it may be the case that they are conscious of being watched and filmed. Uh, back in 2006 in Minsk, and I'll discuss that later, they were extremely brutal and hardly any pictures exist. So. I'm not telling you that Lukashenko is warm fuzzy and his riot police is just a bunch of wimps, no. There are other considerations. As you see, the demonstration is further afield. It's further afield. Yeah. 
you will be able to spot secret policemen because they have walkie-talkies quite openly. You won't be able to spot provocators in the crowd who are secret police because they don't have walkie-talkies. They have passwords. So if you see a burly man not being arrested, that means he is somehow connected to the police uh, from among the demonstrators, and there will be a few. That's the second one? Yeah. Uh, so what happened to the first one? I turned it off. Why? It was still... T you wanted no. to stop it? No, no, it went to the end. It was only three minutes. Okay. This is, this is from the other side. Normally, she'd be hit on the face and, they, and one person or two would drag her. Now, three or four try to drag her. She's just screaming. Uh, again, not an apology, an observation from my experience. And somehow you'll see they'll know whom to take, the, uh, the riot police. That means that there were informers in the dispersing crowd. Uh -uh. See, the, the crowd had been dispersed now. The police came, parked the cars, found out, and grabbed people that, who had been identified as having had participated in the event. They're just showing police trucks with prisoners.
See? Those can carry both prisoners and the riot police. And the place is clear. The kids disperse. As you see, there is not much damage seen on the streets. And uh, they didn't even use tear gas. It means the rioters were not rioters. They were just peaceful demonstrators. Otherwise, there would have been damage. Had the situation deteriorated at a peaceful rally, had the participants allowed themselves to be provoked, there would have been much more churning, so to speak, going on. But OK, so what I can't show you is that in addition to around 200 people detained in Minsk and a couple of other places, the secret police snatched snatched uh, a number of what the regime refers to as ringleaders. To call them ringleaders entails imagining a great organization, an opposition, actually. In Belarus, there is none. There are single dissidents who are symbols. Some of them take credit for the demonstrations. And I'll tell you um, all about the demonstrations, but let me just finish about the arrests and detention. Dziany uh, Sadowski was, is a, um, a leader of um, an outfit called the Belarusian Christian Democracy. He was arrested on Saturday and he was fined about $1,000. This is not the Gulag, again. $1,000 is a lot of money, as you can imagine. But uh, further, Alias uh, Wafhanyets, who had been detained on March 23rd, he is a well-known dissident, received 10 days. So we're talking the level of repressions uh, commensurate with what the Poles experienced in the second half of the 1970s. So this is the late Gerek type of uh, uh, semi-terror. The secret police beat up Wafhinets. They later claimed that he himself hit his face against the car seat. Yeah, which is <laughs> which is exactly what um, I'm familiar with from the 1970s. Uh, but again, my parents and grandparents were familiar with mass murder, so <laughs> bear with me. As I recount the abuses by the authorities, then another um, another dissident, I think it was um, oh Sadowski, was arrested at a home, and the charge against him was petty hooliganism, whatever that means. Uh, the police complained that he cursed at them. <laughs> And that, all, that he also had camo pants on, and he threw himself on the floor. It looks like he uh, attempted nonviolent resistance, and they carried him out. Uh, he was um, uh, 
find. Another, um, another uh, activist, Maxim Winiarski, was sentenced to 15 days uh, because he refused, according to the police, he refused to listen to the orders by the police, which can be interpreted in any uh, possible way. Uh, Winiarski is of European Belarus outfit. Um, in Vitebsk, a few people were sentenced to uh, jail, but for a few days or maybe a couple weeks, including uh, Leonid Świecik and Artyom Sizencawa. The demonstrations took place in a number of cities in Belarus, say a dozen, maybe more. In a couple of cities, I believe, in the most heavily populated cities by the Poles, that is Brzeszcz or Brest and Grodno, Chrodna, the authorities allowed the march to proceed legally so that the participants were not dispersed, were not pun punished. They were just allowed to march. And probably the secret police uh, went after the perceived leaders. Um, so as you see, this is not the Maidan. And it's over. And when I finished, when I was there, I was um, uh, watching it. And when I finished watching this, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a little piece on Belarus. And I predicted that it would be over just like it was over in Russia. Again, in Russia, the scenario is very, very similar, where in a few cities, the authorities allowed the demonstrators to march against corruption. And in most cities, the government ba banned all demonstrations. And then there was a crackdown, more or less mm, as violent as what you saw there. One important point, remember that in um, major cities, so Moscow and St. Petersburg, the police tend to be less brutal than in the provinces where the demonstrators and the organizers tend to be rather anonymous tend to be rather anonymous. So, and since the police is really unreformed since the Soviet times, it's the same people, they really feel less reflex to show any sort of consideration. I'm not going to say kindness, but what you saw in Minsk, four policemen carrying a woman who was shrieking would have been a short shrift a blow to the face and dragging by the legs somewhere like in Nizhny Novgorod. Uh, so, and we don't have footage yet from uh, uh, provincial demonstrations. So we can't, we can't really tell you. It takes, as you can imagine, it takes a little bit of time to research <coughs> things properly. Okay, so what is the background for all of this in Belarus. In, first I'll give you a, a particular uh, briefing on 
uh, on why the demonstrations happened and then I'll give you a broader context so you would understand uh, what's going on and why Lukashenko acts this way and not the other. In April 2015, Belarus introduced something called the parasite tax. Anybody who is unemployed for longer than half a year must register and must pay a tax. It's a, similar, it's a similarly punitive measure with all proportions retained naturally, like the Obamacare penalty. You don't have insurance, you have to pay a tax. Lukashenko intended the parasite tax to raise $240 per capita for those who are unemployed to defer the cost of quote-unquote free health care and social insurance. So you're a parasite, you pay. And from that, we'll take care of you. Because until April 2015, there was no such solution and there was much uh, grumbling in the government circles that there were some people who didn't work and they shouldn't freeload. However, the law was going into effect in February 2017, so two years after it was actually written and voted, quote-unquote, in the rubber stamp parliament. Already in January 2017, sensing, I'm guessing from secret police reports and social media, timber, um, sensing that this was a very unpopular measure, Lukashenko attempted to moderate the law by devolving its execution to local authorities and asking the local authorities, his stooges, to particularize. So perhaps to give exemptions, but it was very murky and unclear who could get and who couldn't get exemptions. Then in February 2017, <coughs> when the law went into effect, demonstrations broke out in a score of cities maybe even more. I mean, you've never heard about a place like Molodechno. It's rather tiny, not just by American standards, but even by Belarusian standards. So you had demonstrations in Mol well, Molodechno, Brest, and Pinsk, then in Minsk, and Orsha, and Bobruisk, in um, eastern Ukraine, not only western, but also eastern Ukraine. There was even a sit-in at Kuropaty, which is a suburb, more or less, of Minsk. It is also a site of a, a massive burial uh, cemetery place where, in 1937-38, the communists must have killed about 30,000 people minimum. We don't know exactly how many, because after the heydays, of Belarus independence in the early 1990s. Lukashenko came to power in 1994, and that was it. We just know their graves. 
there a few had been uh, uh, exhumed and victims counted. So we believe about 30,000 people were shot. That's in addition to tens of thousands who had been killed by the Germans during World War II. Um, and at any rate, at Kuropati, there was no demonstration but a sit-in, a sit-in and a sort of a blockade. Why? Because a developer connected to the regime wanted to develop the site <laughs> on the dead bodies. So there were a few intrepid souls who chained themselves to the machines, did what we call acts of civil disobedience. And nothing happened. That is, the authorities backed down at Kuropate before they backed down uh, as far as the parasite tax uh, is concerned. Lukashenko treated the demonstrators with a carrot. He said, okay, we shall postpone the implementation of this law until next year. But the demonstrations persisted. Remember, the people objected to the new taxes for economic reasons. Only a few are conscious dissidents <coughs> who understand this is not just a case of the parasite tax. It's the whole system that's post-communist system that's wrong. The tax impacted people who hold seasonal jobs. So if you hire yourself out as a farmhand, you're not needed in December and January and February, maybe even not in March, nor in November. You work mostly for during harvest time. Sometimes you work for planting. Uh, so you make money enough to live on for the whole year. But technically speaking, you're a parasite <laughs> because nature obeys the laws of nature and you obey nature to work in agriculture. That's one example. There are also seasonal jobs and temporary jobs for artisans and small businessmen who don't exactly bloom in Belarus, so they hire people from time to time. And those people make enough money again to live for a year, but uh, according to the new law, they also qualify as parasites if they don't work longer than half a year. And here is the most vociferous group opposing this tax, namely Belarusians who work abroad. That is, very many of them go to Moscow, uh, like Moldovans, they work in construction, and Ukrainians in Moscow. And then very many go to the EU, mostly Poland, but also further afield. So, if they work abroad and bring the money back, that means they are parasites, because they are not registered in Belarus, either as full-time workers, or they are not registered as uh, uh, unemployed. They have to register to be subject to the parasite tax. If they don't register, it means they skip the law too. The ones who work abroad are 
possibly the most emboldened of the lot. They're, they also tend to be very young and the most entrepreneurial. So they got very upset. Hence, they hit the streets. I don't think there was much organization. The people got together on social media, which naturally the dictatorship tries to control. But once the word is out, some people show up. There had been previous, in previous years, similar um, situations where demonstrations would occur spontaneously. So what can we make out of this? Well, since the 1990s, it looked like the population of Belarus reconciled itself to the dictatorship, which provided some kind of a social net and stability. There was a social contract of sorts. In Belarusian, it's called Charka i Shkvarka, which means um, a shot of vodka and a piece of bacon or a jerk, you know, a beef jerk. Shot of vodka and beef of jerk. Well, it no longer excites anybody. This is not enough. Uh, previously, last time we had large demonstrations in 2011, the dissidents and some of the people took to the streets, but almost exclusively in Minsk. That's 2011. Though that was called a silent protest. Why? Well, because the dictatorship decided everything was an act of terrorism. When I say brutal, I mean brutal. So instead, people showed up. They would gather at city squares in Minsk and they would clap hands. No slogans, no banners, as they used to say in New York about one's car, no nothing. <laughs> no radio, no nothing. They would just clap hands. And the secret police would be very brutal, so one, two, three, punch to the face. And the riot police would come in and be brutal as well. The clapping or silent protest also occurred for economic reasons. It was triggered because the regime devalued its currency, the hryvna. So it lost half its value overnight. By the way, clapping became a serious legal offense. You could be arrest, no, arrested and imprisoned for it. Um, so the protest fizzled out again. You have to give it to Batko Lukashenko. He has the resolve. Um, In contrast, today, or recent, most recent demonstrations attracted hundreds of people in each place. Hundreds of people, which is very shocking. Uh, and they were not just limited to the capital city of Minsk, but also occurred in provincial towns. The numbers involved, large by 
passive Belarusian standards made the demonstrations quite respectable. Lukashenko correctly judged them a threat. So as I said, the carrot was postponing the taxes and the stick was crushing, cracking down on the demonstrators and on the dissidents or dissident leaders. Uh, Lukashenko has made a few overtures toward the dissident milia, which is tiny. It's probably the size of Poland's dissident milia of the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, he met, for example, with Josef Sharedzic, who is the editor-in-chief of the independent or dissident paper called Narodneja Volia, the will of the people, or people's will. That, in turn, uh, invokes a terrorist organization in, this, in the empire of the czars, which uh, I don't think Baitko finds ingenious. <laughs> For now, order reigns in Minsk. Does this mean that Lukashenko's liberalization is over? Not necessarily. First, bad news. The demonstrators were accused of serving as the fifth column. The dictator charged that there was at least one group, White Legion, it called itself White Legion, which stashed away weapons and was going to launch a counter-revolution to eliminate the post-communists. And they were, they were supposed to be the stooges of Vilnius and Warsaw, so agents of Lithuania and Poland. I'm sure that emigres harbor many a fantasy. I myself was a volunteer not only for Afghanistan, but also whatever paramilitary activities there could be to overthrow communism in Poland. That's just what young people, some young people do. Uh, there is no evidence that this is somehow a NATO operation. I'm not saying there is no sympathy in Lithuania or in uh, Poland toward such people who would like to overthrow Lukashenko, but the possibility that this is somehow a, uh, a government, Polish or Lithuanian government operation is extremely slim to none. So I am not sure whether Lukashenko will use this crackdown as an excuse to change his policy line, but it doesn't have to be that way. He can spew accusations and crack down domestically a little bit. As I said, um, I've been paying attention to the level of brutality because if he exceeds a certain volume of pain, there is no going back for a while. This will cause uh, 
outrage in the European Union, and here's the broader context, in the United States and in places like Poland. That's why four guys carrying a shrieking woman instead of the usual punch to the face and drug her to the car. Uh, so Lukashenko's current liberalization is not necessarily over. Now, the punch against the opposition was rather mild first because there's not much of an opposition. Second, the dissidents lack a mass following among the atomized post-Soviet population. And third, most importantly, Lukashenko at the moment treads very carefully to cultivate good relations with the West. He did exactly the same thing before between 2008 and 2010, ending with the clapping protests in 2011. Then he cracked down again. Uh, but now there is more at stake. In 2015 and 2016, the dictator released political prisoners, substituted arbitrary arrests of dissidents with mandatory fines. You no longer went to jail. You just had to cough up a hundred bucks, which is a lot of money there. Uh, he staged uh, a non-violent pseudo-democratic election which reconfirmed the strongman as president and for the first time in 20 years he appointed two female dissident activists, Hanna Kanapskaya and Alena Anisim, to the rubber stamp parliament. So there are now two free voices who stand up and say, ah, oh, it cannot be like this anymore. And then everybody else, hundreds of rubber stamp deputies just sit and stare at them, dismayed. You understand, this is substantially much more in terms of that fake liberalization than it, than it was back in 2008 through 2010. As a result of this, of this game by Lukashenko, the European Union lifted virtually all the sanctions that had been imposed in 2004. No freedom ensued, naturally but the secret police seized treating a peaceful assembly as an act of terrorism, which had been the case, say, in 2006, again, when there were demonstrations. It looks like every six years we have a cycle in Belarus. The trade-off is obvious. Economic relations with the West improve the living standards in Belarus. Western investments create jobs. Lukashenko is not ready at the moment for a full-fledged crackdown and a violent anti-EU and anti-US backlash. It is not yet necessary. If the opposition remains paralyzed and if the people revert to inactivity, then he will just spew some more anti-Polish hatred and talk about the fifth column, Bristol, and then his, he'll smooth his own feathers and he'll continue with this fake liberalization, but not too much. What we see in Belarus is 
a shift between repression and liberalization. There is a method in this madness. He executes policy shifts from repression to liberalization at home to achieve tangible results and benefits from abroad. So abroad, he alternatively either cozies up to or recoils from the great powers while playing a variety of unilateral games with the post-Soviet successor states. That requires Lukashenko to be extremely flexible. He, rely, uh, he relies on his dialectical skills as a Marxist-Leninist sans ideology. That means he does not expect paradise on earth anymore. That was back under the Soviets. That dream ended rather sadly, but the communists stayed in power and the only game they know how to play is Marxism-Leninism. So they use it to maintain themselves in power. All the dialectical shifts which contradict, seemingly contradict their beliefs are actually uh, maneuvers to achieve what they want. Power and permanence. He's a skilled post-communist. He's also ruthlessly pragmatic. And his is an integrated strategy. His dictatorial interest dictates the direction of his dance or alternance, to borrow a term from the old Kremlinology uh, vocabulary. Alternance was a key to understand Red Moscow's maneuvers back during the Cold War. When the USSR wanted to reform itself, it played nice with the West to pacify it and thus to acquire a free hand at home. If the West led up its defenses, it means the Soviets were able to pursue their policies on the third, including reform. And a dictatorship is its most vulnerable when it endeavors to fix its, itself, its, its problems. The Kremlin therefore preached the town internationally and liberalized, pseudo-liberalized domestically to attract Western know-how and credit. When the Bolshevik Politburo obtained what it wanted, it would build up its military strength, crack down on the people and face off with the West again. Now remember, oftentimes the town was just a rhetorical detente because, say, in the 1970s, the Soviets were at the peak of their expansion everywhere across the globe. It's just they talk nice, relatively speaking, they talk nice. And all the while, uh, the USSR preached peace, freedom, and democracy. Many of us lapped it up in the West. This repeated itself ad nauseum at least until the implosion of the evil empire in 1992. There was alternance. Uh, I think Tony D'Agostino was the first person to describe that mechanism, a Sovietologist at San Francisco <coughs> State University, Anthony D'Agostino, alternance. Well, the old ways do not die, they mutate. For instance, North Korea pursues 
the alternance trick until this very day. They saber rattle, then we give them money, aid. They stop, build up a new generation of weapons, and they start saber rattling again. So they would, we would feed their people, and then we'd provide them with um, a more means to build even better weapons. <laughs> it goes on and on. This is an alternance trick par excellence. As you see, um, Belarus also knows the game well. And please remember, its master is an old KGB border guard and a shrewd apparatchik, Alexander Lukashenko. His hapless nation is relatively small, demographically unimpressive, and devoid of strategic resources. His people tend to lack a firm sense of national identity. Belarusian ethnicity and language play a second fiddle to a post-Soviet mentality in the Russian language. The dictatorship officially endorses the latter construct, not the Belarusian language. The opposition, democratic and otherwise, is quite feeble. There are no native oligarchs because the strongman brokers no competition. He makes sure there were no native oligarchs. Initially, Lukashenko's appetite was not Minsk, but Moscow. He wanted to use Belarus as a springboard to the Kremlin. Already in 1994, before Vladimir Putin, Lukashenko pioneered what later became known as sovereign democracy. Sovereign democracy. In, in fact, he copied the Central Asian model of the post-Soviet republics to maintain control of his realm. That's the gist, the heart of sovereign democracy, Central Asia. Nazarbayev and Kazakhstan is the best player. The strongman then championed uh, a union between Belarus and Russia. He endeavored to impose sovereign democracy uh, on Moscow by osmosis. This was his roadmap to the Kremlin. The bid failed. However, once Putin seized power and asserted himself, Lukashenko ceased talking of liquidating Belarus as a separate state. What we see is wooing the East and the West for benefits. Domestically, the Lord of Minsk has been able so far to neutralize all threats to his regime. Internationally, his position is much more precarious. Thus, he suavely uses the weapon of the weak, diplomacy and endeavors to weasel into an international security system that would allow him to stay in power without any unnecessary democratic reforms. To remain on top, he has had to perform cyclical contortions, the alternance dance. The strongman alternatively woos or rejects the same set of major suitors, Russia, China, the United States, and the European Union. He further flirts giddily with a bevy of lesser partners, including Lithuania, Poland, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Ukraine, and others. But he alternates batting his eyelashes at them with an occasional cold shoulder. Depends what he gets in return. For instance, because Russia has increased energy prices for Belarus, 
uh, the latter turned to Azerbaijan and Iran to buy oil and gas. To grease the skids prior to the Azeri deal, Minsk arrested and deported to Baku an Israeli-Russian blogger who had posted articles critical of the Azeri regime and hid in Belarus. And Lukashenko used a Polish company to handle the Iranian delivery. He further touts his plan to expand the south-north North Odessa Brody Moser pipeline to Adamovo. The plan would greatly benefit Poland in its quest for energy independence from Russia. Thus, at one stroke, the Belarusian dictator put together an energy alliance autonomously from the Kremlin. This is integrated strategy. You throw them a bone, the Israeli-Russian blogger, you make a deal with the Azeris, then you make the deal with the Iranians, and you ask the Poles to do the logistics and make some money. That's brilliant. But it's called an alternance dance. Remember that Polish fifth column, too. With the great powers, Belarus utters a variety of noises and executes a plethora of shrewd moves depending on the circumstances to get its way. The case of Russian-Belarusian relations is quite instructive. When to counter the Western sanctions, Russia starts to enforce border controls too stringently, it stems the flow eastwards of mostly Polish goods repackaged surreptitiously as Belarusian. The Lukashenko regime retaliates invariably by complaining loudly of the violation of free trade principles and the losses sustained by Belarus because of the Western sanctions imposed on Russia for its occupation of Crimea. Further, Belarus then turns to China. Minsk sells itself to Beijing as a springboard to the European Union. It helps the Chinese establish joint ventures to sell cheap products westwards. Simultaneously, it also solicits Chinese infrastructural investments and purchases of Belarusian raw materials and half products, in particular in forest and food processing industries. Um, the tactics of Minsk resemble somewhat the method used by third world satrapies to milk both the United States and the USSR during the Cold War. If Washington didn't give them what they wanted, they would surely turn to Moscow and to a lesser extent Beijing, which gladly obliged. There, were, there are usually strings attached, however, when dealing with the West. One must pay lip service to human rights. Until recently, Belarus has pursued a policy of rapprochement with the West. Minsk has been in the liberal mode. It has cozied up to the EU. It released political prisoners and it eased up its persecution of dissidents, as I've already mentioned. Lukashenko even eliminated visas for Westerners, including the Americans, along with 79 other nations. Now we can enjoy Belarus for five days, bureaucratic, hassle-free so long as we fly through Minsk. Was the move coordinated to remove or at least ease up the bitter aftertaste of the Minsk government's somewhat thuggish crackdown on 
the anti-tax protesters? Perhaps so. But just to, before you get all excited and pack your bags to fly to Belarus through Minsk, a friend of mine got all excited and packed his bags and called to go to Minsk. And he was told by a, a travel agent, sorry, we checked, you have to fly in business class. <laughs> so the fine print was not released. Even Radio Free Europe didn't report on that. Not just through Minsk, but you have to splurge. And uh, well, the, the government says, we want serious people, serious businessmen to come. Why else would we let them travel visa uh, free? Yes, Lukashenko is quite skilled. Look at his game with Moscow. Because his international position continues to be fragile, he overcompensates by swaggering. Now, the strongman lacks nuclear weapons. He dares not take on his neighbors to the west. And he also realized that, realizes the looming threat of Russia. Putin remembers well Lukashenko's imperial pretensions and treats him in a rather patronizing manner. The Russian desires to reintegrate the post-Soviet sphere and Belarus is definitely on the list. The scenario of absorption is not set yet. After all, imperialism is a crime of opportunity rather than a grand design in many, in many places. An outright invasion is the least likely option to occur right now. Patient infiltration and enfeeblement are on the table at the moment. Tin Khan GRU officers and their little green men may come into play later. Perhaps a regime change is more feasible than an annexation. But indirect control should suffice for now. A neutral, undemocratic and rather pro-Russian Belarus can be allowed to vegetate on the fringe of the empire for now. And Lukashenko gets to play his games even if they annoy Putin from time to time. Take the case of uh, the Russian military bases in Belarus. In 2013, Lukashenko agreed enthusiastically to welcome permanent presence of Russian troops in his country. If you recall, this is when he was in his anti-liberal mode and anti-US, anti-West, anti-EU mode. He, the dictator, um, promised that the Russians would be allowed to use the pre-World War II Polish garrison in Baranovice as an, as an air force base. But now the strongman claimed to have changed his mind. The Red Army was no longer welcome in Baranovice. Never mind, retorted Putin, Rus Russia could put its base in Orsha or Bobruisk, which is by the Russian border. Baranovich is toward the west. Lukashenko shot back that he wanted Russia's equipment and not her troops. As the demonstrations were underway. Uh, accordingly, Moscow has agreed to equip Minsk with 12 Suhoi 30 military jets. 
I mean, it's not a Star Wars size fleet, but it looks like the dictator got his way. But meanwhile, out of the blue, Lukashenko started most observers by issue, issuing a statement in support of, I quote, fighting fraternal Ukrainians. This came straight on the heels of Minsk's refusal to uh, uh, recognize the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula by the Russian Federation. Lukashenko mockingly invoked the Mongol invasion of the lands of Ruthenia in medieval times as a current uh, just justification for um, the Russian Federation uh, ceding its land to Mongolia. He said more or less, imagine if the Mongols came now to Moscow and say, cough up all this real estate, southern Russia, for instance, because we used to occupy it in medieval times. Uh, uh, reportedly, there are also deep purges of uh, of, pro of the pro-Moscovite uh, of the pro-Moscovite element in uh, Minsk's security apparatus. Lukashenko has further mobilized his military reservists and stages maneuvers. He vows to defend Belarus from any outside invasion. And truthfully, the only feasible invasion can come from the East, of course. Putin did not like this sort of an uppity attitude at all. Almost simultaneously with the debate about the Air Force Base to add insult to injury at, an, at a Eurasia Economic Union summit at Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, Belarusian, uh, Belarusian Prime Minister Andrei Kabaiko criticized Russia for failing to integrate properly in the Eurasian system and for increasing the energy prices for Belarus by 110% over a previous year. Minsk earns serious hard currency revenue by refining oil products for foreign markets. But its, but its state-owned companies can only compete in world markets if subsidized energy prices continue from Moscow. But the Kremlin has a problem too. I don't know if you realize all that bounty of, of oil and gas, of energy, has to be moved immediately. They have no capacity to store a lot. So it's in their interest to sell, sell and push it to the West, and push it to anybody who would buy. So in a way, Lukashenko can brazenly look Putin in the eye and say, well, it's your gas is going to go to waste if you don't give it to me for half free. So keep that in mind too. It's not all favors. They, the Russians really have to keep going. That's why if they sound desperate with Western Europe and Polish obstructionism, that's because all that energy is going to waste if they don't move it. The gas in particular, but also oil too. They would have to have some serious infrastructure to keep that much. Now, 
is a regime change in Minsk in the cards? Well, who knows? As I said, the invasion is the least likely option. But if Lukashenko overplays his hand, Putin will get annoyed and he'll try to do something when it fits him, when the circumstances are right. The regime of Belarus trumpets any concession from Moscow with great triumph. The Kremlin does not mind supplying a token, a token force to throw Lukashenko a bone. Serious compliance requires serious energy subsidies. However, Putin giveth and he take, taketh away in his own bouts of alternance as he pursues his own alternance policy. He also keeps all options open. For all its posturing, Lukashenko has not canceled the massive Zapad military exercise that will see tens of thousands of Russian troops on Belarusian soil. Neither has Minsk reneged on its cooperation in Moscow's vaunted uh, area access area denial system. Belarus plays an actively crucial role in Russia's plan to uh, sever the Baltic states from its NATO branch by attacking Poland through its Suwalki Gap. Strategically, Belarus remains a major ally of the Russian Federation. Lukashenko may be beating the patriotic drum of national sovereignty, but it pretty much sounds like Lenin and Stalin's national Bolshevism. The communists routinely invoked Russian nationalism to mobilize, them, to mobilize the masses to defend the regime. Lukashenko emulates them perfectly. That does not mean that he is ready to take on Putin. Why would he? The master of the Kremlin is the best guarantor of the Minsk satraps throne. Belarus is his sphere of influence, but not his puppet. The West would quite naturally like to get rid of uh, the petty dictator as soon as possible, even if it cringes while supporting him in a mold of some later day Tito. Lukashenko knows the ropes. Moscow is far better for him than anyone else. Putin is ruthless and will only aid Lukashenko for as long as it serves his purpose. Meanwhile, Russia maintains naive and ever so imperceptibly increases its influence with its Western neighbor. The threat of a regime change in Minsk is always a possibility, but like in Kiev, Moscow is unlikely to move seriously unless the post-communist regime of Belarus is threatened by a local mutation of a Maidan revolt. Many Western observers and emigres got very excited about the latest bout of, uh, of the anti-government demonstrations in Belarus. Well, move on, folks. Sadly, there is not really anything to see anymore. The West still smarts from the debacle in Ukraine. It has no plans for a regime change in Minsk. Moscow does, but we do not know yet when it will act on, on them. For now, there will be no major change without a grassroots Belarusian push and Western support for it. But that will most likely trigger a fierce Russian reaction. Perhaps then a regime change in Moscow is the key to the stability of the Intermarium, the lands between the Baltic and Black Seas, including Belarus. For now, Lukashenko is firmly in control in Minsk, showing off his 
alternate skills. Thank you very much. I'll take questions. Yay. Go ahead. My name is Franz Jeffrey, I'm from Belarus. I work uh, as an editor for Radio for Europe and the Belarus Service. Thank you, Dr. Rakevich, for this insightful uh, lecture. Uh, I'd like to add some uh, comments. Sure. Why don't you come on up? Uh, and thoughts, you know, uh, to disagree in some points. Well, sure, uh, sure. First of all, um, yeah, we organized this uh, live streaming from the events in Minsk. Why don't you stand up and come in, come here, and this way you will be seen. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, I should say that uh, we had a very, very a big audience as never before, as the Radio Liberty and all other independent media. The streams from the streets and means that you have seen some videos. Uh, we are watched by more than two or three million people, unique people. And um, I think this wave of protest, it not just happened because, you know, parasites, tax, or not because of strengths or weakness of political leaders, but first of all, because of the power of the information distribution, a viral effect on social networks. Adnaklasniki social network, uh, which we as Radio Liberty opened just like one year ago, gives us every month about 10, 15 million rich impressions. Impressions, you know, like rich people. Uh, speaking about the protests, uh, first of all, I um, do not like to use this word dissidents, your visual use. I understand your uh, justification, but uh, we are still uh, having Belarus no dissidents. They are uh, public figures uh, which are making public politics. They are taking part in uh, so-called uh, elections, parliamentary, local, and even presidential elections. And they have legal instruments of distribution, their ideas and thoughts. Uh, for example, Nikolai Stetkevich, who it seems uh, became the leader, the strongest leader of the Russian opposition. Every his appearance in media, it also gathers 100,000 views, dozen thousand comments, and every his word is multiplied by the audience. So they are not dissidents uh, measuring in terms of 70s, 80s of Poland, for example. Um, for example, Anton Lebetska, his one post in Adnaklasniki, every post gets, Adnaklasniki is like Russian Facebook, let's say, which is very popular in Belarus, gets thousand, uh, dozen thousand comments every day. Um, terror groups, which you mentioned, I think that's the worst result of the protest in Minsk and um, in regions. Not this, you know, several days arrest, which really do not uh, have any big impact on the society. But we have 27 persons accused in preparing uh, yeah. coup d'etat uh, and terror activities against the government, as yeah. mentioned. And they face a very long terms uh, of jail, in jail. And um, the government may be also using them in propaganda, not maybe, but definitely will use them in propaganda accusing the West. And I should say that the vector of Lukashenko's propaganda changed dramatically. You yeah. mentioned, you know, that he was like playing with the West last years and made fantastically. He was supporting Ukraine, he was supporting, you know, uh, some contacts with Americans and he was invited to the Kansas City next week for the anniversary of uh, First World War, uh, entrance of the US to First World War. 
But the day of manifestation, his rhetoric was completely changed. He was very anti-Western. And all the days after, these last four days, where we, we have seen the tons of anti-Western propaganda yeah. and pro-Russian um, uh, statements made by Lukashenko, today they got a very uh, good agreement uh, of energy resources with Russia. And it seems that uh, this uh, brutal crackdown, uh, I would say it's probably it's the end of the liberalization and of this honeymoon with the West. I'm afraid to say this, but it looks that uh, Lukashenko or someone behind him have chosen the Russia uh, idea, the Russian world as, as is his perspective or political. Uh, can I have you more minutes? Yes. No, no, no. Um, so about you know, the brutality. It's very difficult to uh, say how many people exactly were detained according to human, to human rights defenders. Uh, the center Vyasna, uh, 900 people were detained, arrested uh, uh, last weekend, and about 200 of them were jailed. Some of them are already released, and they are telling about the conditions of their uh, jailing, imprisonment, and of their arrests. And uh, we never faced such brutality before. It, it, it could be compared only to December 2010, when, of course, repressions were bigger, let's be frank, uh, and more people were arrested. Uh, many broken limbs. Uh, Alice Lagvinets mentioned by you, he, uh, he, his nose was broken as well. Uh, and you know, the behavior of the real police to elderly was unprecedentedly uh, brutal. You have seen all you know, these babushkas, which was defending white, red, white flags. Jan Grip, you know, he was, who was pushed violently to the uh, petty wagon. Um, so, uh, thankful to the live streaming and this video, uh, we maybe got a better picture of what happens uh, inside of this mess during uh, protest pacification. Protests happened in 13 cities. You just uh, you said in uh, a dozen. 13 cities. We count. We counted. Uh, uh, and you are absolutely right. It's it's uh, for Belarus in Belarus scale. It's unprecedented. Uh, Including Maladechna, which never had these protests. Uh, it's not so small city. It's like uh, 120 people, uh, 20,000 people living there. But still, you know, for small cities, it's something. It's a new quality. And also, I will repeat, is because of media, Radio Liberty, Belsat, and social networks. Um, about parasite tax, he did not postpone parasite tax. First, he said that I'm postponing. He was trying to make this wave of protest weaker, to stop it. Mm -hmm. But a week after this first crackdowns, first pacifications, he said, but actually, I did not postpone anything. Uh, he said, like one week after that, he did not postpone anything. But this time it doesn't. You mean yesterday? He must have said it, or two days ago? No, no. He said just, I think, uh, Friday, just day before the. Oh, I was in trance. I can, yeah, I can send the link. So. No, no, no. I believe you. Sorry. Oh no, I believe you. I'm just making um, sure. It did not matter already for people because this parasite tax was only the reason for uh, start of this protest. But you know. Two weeks ago, nobody mentioned parasite tax anymore. 
it became a strictly political protest with white, red, white flags, which are related to non-Belarus independence, uh, demanding um, Lukashenko's, um, how to say, with a slogan, Lukashenko, go out. Uh, and um, of course, this elderly babushkas joined this protest and on, on March 25th. But you know, uh, I, I, I would say it's not social economical protest anymore. Something similar we observed in Armenia when it started with this electricity yeah. bills. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, that's absolutely the case. It starts with uh, bread. Yes, and then but it's always, in Poland, I think it's also, you it's know. The same, this is the same mechanism. Absolutely. So it's, it's very similar. I like your, okay. oh, sorry, I'm, I'm the last No, I have a class in five minutes, so. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so, and the last point, I think that Lukashenko and Putin is the one, and we should consider them as a one team. Of course, Lukashenko is not so uh, dependent and so independent, so independent, um, and at the same time, he gets some, some field for maneuvers. But we will see this autumn the military exercise up at 2017. And uh, then this will be the test. If Lukashenko will cancel these maneuvers, these maneuvers, uh, during these maneuvers, dozen thousand Russian soldiers will come to Belarus. Mm -hmm. And we have a big um, uh, threat that these soldiers will come to the maneuvers and will stay there. And um, that will be a big test for Belarusian statehood and for real Lukashenko, Lukashenko's independence. Thanks. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I, have, I have no comments. It is how it is. We'll Sorry, see. No, no. This is, this is Kremlinology par excellence. Because they don't say anything openly, we have to guess. And you believe it's, it was the tipping point he that, and you believe that he's going to reverse his pseudo-liberalization now. And uh, he still has too many irons in the fire, so we'll see with Zapad, give it half a year. Yeah. Then we'll see. For now, he's really furious. Uh, and, and yes, um, uh, there should be more said about the White Legion and the alleged preparations for a coup for Maidan. My friend and colleague here at IWP, Professor Paul Gobel, believes that the most virulent element that showed up on the streets in Belarus was GRU. They were Soviet provocators. They were not Belarusian um, Green Oak counter-revolutionaries. I wish they were Babahovich's people, but they were not. It looks like um, the most... Um, rabid ones were from Moscow. Also, Lukashenko has made a very conscious choice to blame everything on Poland, Lithuania, NATO, and the European Union and the United States. Why? It's because he decided not to let anybody know that in case if Paul Goebbels was right, it was Putin's warning. Here's what I'm going to do to you if you don't crack down on those demonstrators. I will uh, activate my sleeper cells. I will continue with my infiltration of the ultranationalists, who there are ultranationalists, non-democratic forces in Belarus,
who model themselves after um, the Bandera people in Ukraine, and they think that somehow can bring um, uh, victory over the post-communists. And Putin said, okay, I'm going to do this for you. This is at least what we're guessing. We don't know. Neither you nor I have anything but raw material and glimpses in, into what's going on because they don't share anything openly and that's unfortunate. Anyway, I'd like to invite you to come back and give us an update when and if Zapad happens and see if I'm right about alternance. It's just a question of uh, a, a whether he's had, Lukashenko has had enough. If he doesn't think he's had enough from the West, he'll continue the charade and then he will crack down at a, permanently at a later point. Only to reverse, it looks like Belarus goes in uh, six-year cycles. Maybe not this time, but uh, it will be seen next. Uh, we'll see, yes, we'll see. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, and see you soon at night. All right. Okay.